You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Thank You for Your Servers, a show which looks at the tech news of today, but from a libertarian perspective. Now here is your host, Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. Hey fam, welcome to another edition of Thank You for Your Servers. I am Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. You can follow me at Nick Way, N-I-C-K-W-A-Y-E on Twitter. And I am a proud member of the Make Liberty Great Again podcast network. How are we doing this week? Long time coming. I'm recording a little late because I've had a little bit of a busy weekend. So first things first, I want to do a kind of a switch up the format a little bit here. Give you a little bit of a quick hit about what else is going on in the tech world before I begin to pontificate about how the tech world is completely effed up. This week, Intel released its ninth generation core processors for desktops and mobiles. This is, uh, on, uh, this is of course, after the fact that they've kind of said that they're going to exit the 5G market. But at the end of the day, the bread and butter for Intel is these chips for particularly laptops, desktops, and the remainder of their 4G chip infrastructure going forward. The new chips are pretty dope, man. We're talking about i9, 8-core, uh, 6-core, 4-core, 2-2-core, like a whole bevy of i7, i9, i7, i5, i3s, Pentiums, which I didn't even think were still around, and Celerons, each with the ability to be overclocked, uh, overclocked with no integrated graphics, excellent power envelopes of anywhere between 45 watts to 65 watts, depending on what you're doing. This is basically just what Intel does best for now, and it's just bigger, better chips. It's the latest variance here that Intel has of its 14 nanometer technology, and it is like the rest of the industry, it is hard and diligently at work trying to get us to 10 nanometer. But I mean, this whole between this whole family of chips, you're going to get 34 different CPUs. For those of, those of us out here that still have uh, laptops, I mean, there's a lot to offer. It's going to create these muscle notebooks uh, with just incredible amounts of power and stuff. I mean, come on, man. You got to admit, guys, we live in the future. So of the ninth generation line of, of, of i9 processors, or the i99900K, the K uh, denotes that it can be overclocked, and it has also this thing called like a thermal velocity boost. So if it senses that the chip is under a certain degree Celsius and one is to overclock it, it will do so seamlessly. You can, be, you can overclock the, this entire family of uh, 9900 K and KF and and whatnot chips to five gigahertz. The T's being uh, the what is it? T's are low power. With this uh, thermal velocity boost, allows you to overclock to four point four gigahertz. Uh, each of these, uh, all these chips, kind of fall within the two point one to three point six gigahertz regime. And you know, it's they're pricey chips, very very pricey chips. But I mean, what is it going to take now? We all we all use desktops, or laptops really as desktops, and I could probably use more power from my very underpowered i th- uh, core i three that I'm using to record this podcast. In other news, 
Uh, I was just looking at this whole Samsung folding phone flap. Apparently, when you take a new design concept and bring it to like the real world, there's a tendency for things to break. And so I'm looking at a lot of these videos. I'm looking at a lot of the teardowns and stuff. And there's essentially a problem with this folding phone. It's still the coolest tech I've seen probably since, I don't know, the iPhone. Um, but, you know, big up for Samsung to try to put itself out there. Uh, they've had to delay uh, a lot of the shipments of the phone. They've had to re-engineer some things. Uh, Verizon and AT&T were, I think AT&T has actually formally announced that they're holding back release of the phone, but they're still going to release the phone. It's just there's a lot of work that needs to be done to shore up this phone, the visible crease that one can see in the right light. I mean, there's some there's some downsides to this phone, but I mean, is it going to be a flop? I think it's going to be a flop because of price. I don't think it's going to be a flop because of, you know, the engineering snafu that is folding a plastic screen. But, you know, it is what it is. And so I, 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 I wish them luck. But yeah, I've been looking at videos about this. I mean, Marcus Brownlee had a pretty good breakdown video about his ups and downs about it. I, I'll probably throw that in the show notes. And all in all, man, I mean... They're going to have to delay the launch until they fix this. This is, you know, this is hard. These are hard engineering problems. And so I don't want to be be on the bandwagon of jumping on there and saying, see, just told you this flip phone was a dumbass idea. No, it's, I mean, it's not a terrible idea. It's just not really ready for prime time. So apparently a lot of these units that went out to reviewers like broke within hours and stuff. And so that's really not a good thing, particularly in this day and age. We have influencers on these social media networks and these websites who are going to definitely run your phone through the ringer. They ran a phone through the ringer. The review models were left a lot to be desired, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. And lastly, here for a, one of my quick hits that aren't so quick, um, 5G deployment update. So I'm a big, big, not fan, I guess, geek when it comes to this type of technology because I've worked in RF before. And basically, like, the consensus, as a lot of people are starting to understand, T-Mobile being the most vocal because they probably had the less of the millimeter wave frequencies that would make 5G truly sing is Verizon and uh, and even T-Mobile admitting that millimeter wave 5G isn't for widespread coverage. So millimeter wave, if you are not familiar with it, is this over 6 gigahertz spectrum. It can go all the way up to t- almost 60 gigahertz um, as I discussed in episode maybe one or two about the fact that like millimeter wave doesn't travel very far. It is a very broadband spectrum. So that's why you can achieve gigabit speeds over the air, but you can't achieve gigabit speeds over the air at distance in adverse conditions with millimeter wave without extensive multi uh what is it uh multiple and multiple out antenna configurations and array antenna configurations on these devices and so i mean t-mobile typically likes to throw shade at its competitors but at least it understood early on that it was never going to be able to deploy on a, on a nationwide basis a millimeter wave 5g network they're relying on six seven and eight hundred megahertz for 5g that doesn't necessarily get them the, the throughputs of what uh, the high end of millimeter wave 5G will produce, but it will get you better than four, get you better than 4G LTE or basically LTE. And, and honestly, truly, I mean, the truth be told, as everyone kind of runs for building out like 
5G spectrum and or get building out on this new 5G spectrum, I think LTE um, and its variants, um, because we're still not done with every generational, with um, the hardware and software and, and, and frequency kind of progressions of, of LTE, I mean, I actually think that you're really honestly truly going to uh, see LTE around for a while and LTE be about as competitive as it is with at least right now the first generation of gigabit fiber to the home simply because it can operate on those free it can operate on those frequencies more efficiently the standard it actually supports it and there's just a lot more experience and equipment that's going to be out there when you go to places like you know the continent of Africa South America and other parts of Mexico and rural America LTE is going to rule the roost particularly at the frequencies that we discuss and that this millimeter wave roll out of 5G is going to be for dense urban areas or dense kind of community areas. And backhaul is still going to require either conventional high-powered microwave, conventional fiber, and other copper assets in the ground, and that you'll just have these pockets of area that have very dense antenna array set up for millimeter wave. You'll get your gigabit, you'll get your IoT, IE, Internet of Things, and, and whatnot. So that is good to see. I mean, I wanted to see what this technology did in the real world. And what we're learning is that it will inevitably suck in the real world, as I had suspected. And that maybe, just maybe, there's no alien technology out there that has made a millimeter wave at scale for a litany of people possible. That's quick hits, baby. Now let's move on to the more in-depth topic areas, starting with Apple. So CEO Jim uh, Tim Cook, or Tim Apple, as the president has, has called him in the past, sat down at the Time 100 Summit uh, this week and basically, for all intents and purposes, said that if you want to be intellectually honest, we need regulation, particularly data privacy regulation, similar to what is in the EU. And my first knee-jerk response is no, we do not need those things. We will see in the coming years, because the types of regulation that he was kind of uh, alerting to, uh, they're, they're, I guess, EU's kind of stringent data privacy rules. We're going to see long-term what a long-term effect that has on the ability of technologies um, in these companies to thrive, how it will ultimately kind of hurt the consumer when it greatly limits, limits the choices that consumers will have for these technologies. We have to get over the fact that these technologies are creepy. And for those of us who, who are much more aware how, of the creepy factor of these technologies, we will take the necessary precautions as long as there are alternatives out there that we can use, as long as there are tools out there we can use. But for the ask, but to ask for the very, very, very heavy handed approach that governments are going to take when it comes to implementing rules. I mean, it's gotten to the point where some of the rules that have been propagated by the EU not to really exaggerate, and I think some people are exaggerating about this, but I mean, I could see the slippery slope, memes being outlawed just because of copyright and data, you know, and then the data protection rules that make it very, very hard. We don't need a HIPAA for our data, right? We just need companies that are better at it. And this is a competitive advantage many uh, upstart companies can bring to the table, but they will be less likely and unable to bring it to the table because you are now advoc advocating for a barrier to entry in an in a industry that is dynamic because of it. Now, this is at the same time that uh, 
a lot of these companies that sit here in the United States of America and demand that, hey, you guys give us some rules of the road, right? And I, I discussed this in last week's episode about the fact that, like, I kind of empathize a little bit with these tech companies because, look, they're always beat up. Uh, you know, if it's not this attorney general in this state, it's the FTC here, it's the FCC here, it's being dragged in front of Congress because, you know, they a Congress person or a senator feels, that, you know, that Twitter is not being fair and, you know, what are you doing and stuff like that, which I think is very rich because you're you're sitting there jumping on a company about its data privacy practices, data privacy practices and protection of personal data practices. In an entity that controls the largest spying apparatus the world has ever seen. I think it's it's silly. These companies, though, at the same time, are sitting in these other markets like China and India and stuff like and giving these uh, these governments all the surveillance tools that they need. And they feel absolutely compelled and no compunction to then say it's the United States to harmonize our business practices across the globe, because these are global companies. We want you to implement similar rules to Europe. Well, at the same time, giving almost 1984 George Orwell-like technology to other regimes around the world, I find it, I find it slightly disturbing. It's also kind of like history repeating itself. A maturing industry typically gets big players, and particularly those big players, if they can't force their competitors out of business, if they can't acquire, acquire their competitors out of, you know, out of the space and absorb them within their, their orbit. They inevitably are going to want regulation, and it's kind of a two. It's kind of happens in a couple of stages. First and foremost, they realize that they have not paid homage to the crown, and people who are within the bureaucracy of the crown start picking at them about this and that. First, it starts with attorney generals and state X Y Z. Then there's congressional hearings. Then there are FTC fines. I mean, just look at the. Facebook announced this week that it has record earnings, more people on the platform, obviously, despite the fact that its growth is slowing, that it has to set aside $2 billion because it has to deal with fines. So in order to not run afoul of our lords and saviors in this in the state, they are going to be like, look, so that we don't have to set aside billions of dollars to pay stupid arbitrary fines that go to no one that has actually been damaged by our negligence or negligence in actions, can you just give us some rules? That also says like, yeah, you know, there are smaller companies making us look bad in this space. Let's t- let's rub them out. And yeah, I, I, I think this is how the anatomy of regulatory capture happens. And we're seeing it in slow motion. We see it in so many other aspects of society. I mean, just look at, uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big Kratom addict. More, more advocate, less addict. And you start to see the anatomy of a smear and how drugs enter, end up on the Schedule 1 that the DEA uses to enforce. And you're seeing the same thing here in the tech industry. As it matures, now we have some major players who now have the lobbying chops to be more than willing to deal with any regulatory burden because it's cheaper than being nitpicked at by every state attorney general, every every investigatory regulatory agency in the world. They just want rules of the road. And that's why these guys always, always call for regulation. 
not necessarily because, you know, they want to protect the consumer. It's because they need to know the rules of the road. And this is why a, a big, all-encompassing state with arbitrary rules or rules that were all over the place or Byzantine rules ultimately clamors for regulation. It's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt companies. It's gonna, it's, we're not going to have as vibrant uh, a startup economy unless we try to figure out some technological way around being able to comply with whatever silly rules will come about because if these guys don't want to have to compete. It's not that they don't want to compete. They're competing very well. They don't want to have to compete. They don't want to have to deal with the regulatory capture, uh, of the, with the regulatory kind of nitpicking that happens all the time, the constant lawsuits. So, so when these guys come up here and says, okay, we can't find a technical solution, we failed, they call out for a king, and that king is the state. So the meeting between Trump and Jack Dorsey, well, this was inevitable. The president has a tendency to run his mouth on Twitter and talk a lot of, well, crap about Twitter on Twitter. And I wonder if this meeting has anything to do with his follower count and all the other things that are happening to conservatives on the platform. So this, this appears to be the CEO of Twitter on a charm offensive on bended knee to the right. Um, Trump uh, has been Twitter's biggest critic when it comes to like shadow banning, the lopsided implementation of his anti-harassment policies. And I think this is probably just kind of general. I, I think he's kind of pissed at his follower accounts aren't consistent or higher. It's petty, but it is what it is. So reading in Motherboard, who was kind of hyperventilating about this whole meeting, because those, God, those guys are just absolute status. I have never seen in the last five years so many publications just like, on the one hand, become, be absolute whores and subservient to state power and to demand state power, but at the same time to fear it so much when it's in the hands of people they don't like. And a lot of the animus toward the president is deserved, but God damn, guys! Like if you 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 re you really have to read this story to be like, what the? F so he wanted to have a conversation with Jack Dorsey to discuss the health of public conversation on Twitter, which I find completely rich. Um, the public conversation on Twitter is absolute uh, acidic, toxic, and garbage, and. A lot of, and some of that blame is to be equally distributed among each ends of the ideological spectrum, our president included. And so I think, it, so reading in this um, motherboard article here that I have in the show notes, apparently they got like an email thread about the meeting and that within that email thread, uh, Dorsey kind of intertwined and quoted, and is quoted as saying, as you know, I believe that the conversation, that conversation, not silence, bridges gaps and drives toward solutions. I have met with every world leader who has extended an invitation to me, and I believe discussions have been productive and the outcomes meaningful. So, I mean, he's just doing what these CEOs have to do, right? It's the same thing why, like, Zuckerberg goes in front of some Senate or House committee and gets grilled. As the power of social media platforms becomes absolutely apparent, when it comes to discourse, communication, outreach, the state is going to be very, very um, interested in how its message is crafted and the methods and the communications methods that they use to get their message out, i.e. they want a hand in these companies, if not through the personal relationships with the CEOs, 
through the fact that it's a new medium that needs they feel needs to be regulated so they can propagandize you. And Mr. Dorsey is right. I mean, he's been more than open to go on any platform, you know, necessarily and in any form, be it world leaders, be it thought leaders, be it whatever. I'm talking more specifically about his appearance on Joe Rogan twice. To be on that, he 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 wants. I I generally think that Jack Dorsey wants to figure out a way that Twitter isn't doing things that can be misconstrued as like lopsided implementation of harassment policies, shadow banning, silencing of critics and stuff. But the man has pretty much admitted that, yeah, I work around a lot of left of center people. I employ a lot of left of center people. And they absolutely positively might via their algorithms, via just, you know, their, what is it, their trust and safety commission. They might crap on conservatives or people right of center from time to time who say things that the woke SJW left thinks is offensive. And that bar has been greatly, greatly lowered. But we should always be concerned, right, when CEOs and kind of other power brokers want to sit down and meet with the state, right? It's kind of my been my overarching theme over the last couple of weeks here about being very, very worried about that. No president should have the ability to browbeat a CEO for from a public company into a meeting about follower account shadow banning or anything. It's really kind of none of Trump's damn business. And if anyone needs to be kissing anyone's ass or on bending knee to anyone, it should be the president. I mean, his effective warfare on Twitter is will be the stuff of legend and will still be discussed and studied going forward in political science and history. And but I, I do understand that he has supporters. This is why this is dangerous. He does have supporters who he wants to advocate for. Twitter has been doing fairly shady things when it comes to cutting down certain voices for a long time. And this is just something that we're going to probably have to get used to. And this is yet again going to be something that turns out in the end to create more regulatory nonsense that are going to hurt markets. It's going to close markets. It's going to make things much, much worse. And it's basically we, the political parties, the political classes, the SJWs, the alt-writers, the whoever, the politicization of these platforms and the weaponization of these platforms, this is probably this is probably going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm glad to see that at least Mr. Dorsey's talking to people. At least he's being a lot more transparent about the fact that his platform is disproportionately a left-wing organ. But um, it is what it is. And we'll see how this goes. So, Elon Musk, our universe's crazy version of Tony Stark, uh, announced at a kind of an investor kind of press event, the autonomy event, uh, lots of upgrades for the Teslas out there. And uh, some of them are pretty sweet. If I ever have screw you type Elon Musk money, I'll definitely get myself on one of these uh, these new Teslas. So going forward, uh, now with the new Teslas, the Model S and Model X will get a 10% increase in range for their battery packs. But also going forward, like the Model S's and X's are going to basically be upped in price. 
and um, they're going to update the sensor package. They're going to update the suspension package to make it a much smoother ride. And he's making crazy promises again. He's been warned by the SEC not to, and his board not to do this. But he's basically promising like full level five autonomy, autonomous driving with his uh, his vehicles and stuff, which technical experts and even my layman technical expertise in the area dealing with you know, reading about this is kind of never going to happen. Right. And, you know, level five autonomous driving is basically like you get in the car and it takes you wherever you, and a human beings never have to intervene behind the wheel. It makes decisions. It knows where it needs to go. It does whatever it needs to do. I don't see that happening. Um, in my lifetime, not even not necessarily because it's not technically possible. It's not possible because of people. In order for a level five autonomous driving feature to even work, greater than fifty percent of the vehicles on the road have to be level five autonomous vehicles. Also, regulators are not going to allow it because people are scared, and it's I don't know. It's I don't see it happening. But these new upgrades, uh, particularly the uh, adaptive like suspension tweaks and software updates are going to happen, are just going to make existing Teslas better. The new upgraded Tesla is much, much more uh, of a luxury vehicle. I've always said that Teslas are basically luxury vehicles because if you're going to spend 78 to 80 to, you know, in the instance of some people have known $120,000, I mean, one would be better served buying a Porsche, a muscle car, I don't know. Something, you know, expensive that has some autonomous driving capabilities, i.e. pre, um, you know, driver uh, assist features, but are whatever it is. There's not much of a liberty angle to this story, right? I just like talking about Elon because Elon is kind of, kind of eccentric and he makes these claims. The, one of the other claims he made with the, um, software tweaks, he said he was going to, that he's making to the new upgraded Tesla's, the S's and model S's and model X's is the ability to announce a fully autonomous robo-taxi that you could use as a, ri- uh, a ride-sharing app while you're at home or at work. You could basically dispatch your Tesla to pick up people and do ride-sharing stuff and while you're at work or at home and stuff like that. That is very cool. And that is very liberating in a way because now this ass, this, this car has never been an asset, but this... This liability that you have sitting in your driveway, like right now, my car is literally just sitting in this driveway. I will not need my car for hours today. And you're going to be able to just like say, hey, man, make me some money while I'm at home Netflix and chilling or drinking beer or recording this podcast. That's pretty cool stuff. That If that would ever be possible, that would be truly a liberating thing. You know, imagine a car that can make you money while you're at home or hanging out or working out or doing whatever. That's a libertarian future I want. But, you know, he also, in a very kind of eccentric way, started kind of throwing shade on other autonomous vehicle technologies and the sensor packages that are used for other competing autonomous vehicle platforms. He really hates LiDAR. And he calls LiDAR a fool's errand. I wouldn't say it's a fool's errand. I'd say it's a very expensive proposition. But I think from a highway traffic safety standpoint, no truly level five or four autonomous vehicle going forward once highway transportation and safety get their hands on, you know, on the industry and get their head around what the industry could possibly be. I don't think you're going to be able to build a car without LIDAR. And truth be told, I think from a reg, I think there should be all kinds of alternatives. 
out there, not just LiDAR. Mr. Musk is, con- is, is contends that he just needs radar, ultrasonic sensors, cameras, um, and GPS, and extensive mapping to get you there. Other companies like Wimo, which is part of um, Google or Alphabet, um, says that you're going to need detailed maps of the area, LiDAR, cameras, all this, all, all this stuff. And even then, from an engineering standpoint and from a safety standpoint, because they're looking in the future about, you know, dealing with regulatory agencies, you're not going to be able to have, you know, level five autonomous vehicles on the road in any large numbers. But he threw shade on the technology. And, and I've kind of studied the technology a little bit. It's very complicated, um, to say the least. It's not like radar or anything like that. But it is much better picture, um, computational picture to be painted of your environment in, in near real time. Um, than in radar and cameras because you have latency between you know cameras and uh, the ability of one to react. I, I think there should be tons of options when it comes to sensor packages. I think you shouldn't c- completely discredit LiDAR. LiDAR will get cheaper. There are tons of companies in that a- space. Um, I'm not a LiDAR proponent. I'm, I mean, I mean, I know enough about the technology to know that like I would feel better with that cameras and radar. But it's just Elon Musk being Elon Musk and just throwing shade on his competitors and giving people pie in the sky stuff. And the industry just kind of lets him get away with it. They still kiss his ass if you just read him anywhere. I mean, there's a little bit more skepticism about some of his claims, but, you know, he's sending rockets into orbit and, and landing the boosters back on like floating barges in the middle of the ocean with about 80%, you know, of effectiveness. Um, he has these cool electric cars and that. Or, I mean, I've driven them. I've been in them. You know, I'm biased. I think they're they're damn good vehicles. I'm not a gearhead, so, you know, I don't know a lot. But you know, I know that rolling sensor platform and computer is one of the coolest things. And if I'm ever internet famous and have internet money, I, 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 I'll, I'll buy one instantly. But, you know, just to not to get too uh, deep, deep in the weeds about this topic and stuff, though. But uh, Crazy Elon, once again, doing doing what Elon Musk does. So we're about a week out, a week, a week past the uh, horrific attacks in Sri Lanka. And of course, the fallout from that story has been um, pretty much the government crackdown on social media. Uh, restrictions that it put into place on that very Sunday. Um, it was a tactic that experts said it's increasingly common in, the, in, the, in that part of the world because the government has a tendency to want to kind of shut down misinformation that may be spreading after such a horrific event. And this kind of brings me to my kind of last topic about techno panic, right? So the techno panic we should really be concerned with is not the technologies that are going to be used by the uh, innovative entrepreneurs and the companies of the future that are going to definitely aid mankind more than anything. It's this general terror, right? That, that It's this general kind of talking point that's being spread about the nature of what these technologies can do in the hands of corporations, and I think what oftentimes gets ignored is what these technologies at scale will do when it comes to like enhancing the authoritarian power of the state. So, from the if it's the, if it's not the New Yorker, and if it's not you know this particular story that's that really if you read deep down in this NBC story that I have in the show notes about Sri Lanka, it's actually saying that like there's less government censorship. When it comes to shutdowns of information and social networks than there have been in the past, 
But the fact is that governments are a little bit more sophisticated about how they tamp down on certain things on social media because governments like to control people, right? But the problem that social media uh, poses to the state apparatus is that, yes, misinformation and narratives that the state doesn't want out there gets out there on the ether. And there's sometimes detrimental effects. Human beings do terrible things. I think I've been reading stories for years about, in, particularly in India, about WhatsApp having to actually try to censor stories because lynch mobs are formed via misinformation coming through WhatsApp and it's gotten people killed. But that's the problem I think a lot of people face in the tech industry, uh, particularly these people who think they're smarter than everyone else, is that they don't understand the, the human component of these things, right? So there's always this utopian utopian period where a new technology comes out and like, oh, Facebook will change the world and this and that and the other thing and Twitter, it's so great and open and everybody's friends and whatever. And they never understand the human factors when it comes to developing these tools. And then they get horrified that human beings are terrible and they do terrible things. And then they cry out, it's like, well, well we need restrictions, and, you know, and, they, and then they try to implement a technological solution. They implement the technological solution and find that you can't implement a technological uh, solution because human beings are very adaptable, right? They have they have all this, what's the word? They have all this faith in mankind when they're people who think the way they think, but they have no faith in mankind when it comes to a human agency to do, you know, things with their platform. They're amazed that people do these things with their platform. And then the intelligentsia and the press is that well, you should have known that human beings do No, you don't. You, human factors are the most misunderstood and most least studied aspect of techno technological implementation, right? And so when people don't understand what the priesthood is telling them about the wonders of technology, then they cry out for, for a pope or a king, or they see the, the technological terror that can happen. My big concern is not 5G towers. My concern is not the fact that Facebook loses my data from time to time. It's not the fact that, you know, they ban certain people who, whose views I may agree with or whose views I may find abhorrent. What scares me more than anything is the fact that these people in these industries and in intelligentsia who have no computer science degrees or any type of technical degrees get out there and call for the state to do something about the fact that people are people. And they never quite understand that this techno panic is not helpful, right? Do they not understand, as the priests of as, as the priests of these technologies, from autonomous vehicles to five G networks to you know internet censorship that they see is happening on these social media networks, the inability for one to pay for things in paper currents, fiat currency, and stuff. They don't. They do understand that like the masses will rise up, and they'll turn on the tech, and they'll make these things. It'll be the burning of the Library of Alexandria. And its analogy will be when the state says that we can't have level five autonomous vehicles, that we must put this technology in this, that, or the other thing. See, they sit here and they have, they bring up all these stories about the techno panic. It is these techno panics, I say, because then they give us stories about authoritarian regimes all around the world, shutting down internet access, spying on people, stuff like that. That's what governments do. And there's no reason to not implement a technology or to not put a technology out there because of what stupid people will do and what governments will do. I think this panic is stupid. Do you understand things like CRISPR? 
Do you understand things like autonomous driving, autonomous vehicles in, as, as a whole? Do you understand the wonders that 5G will enable? Do you understand what will, cryptocurrency will, will enable? Do you understand what laboratory manufactured meats will require, plant-based products, nuclear energy, all these things like that? Do you understand that those, what those things will bring us? And to sit back and to always, from the sideline, from the, from the comfort of your computers, and I'm talking to the intelligentsia tech press, and, to, and, and, and not even the tech press, the press in general, and to bring up all these technical horror stories about this dystopian future and stuff like that, you are building the case for the state to not only stifle this beautiful Star Trek-like utopia that we all hope we get to, but you're building the you're building the case for the state to use this technology in much more hideous ways. All I have to point to is China, the Uyghurs who were being thrown into re-education camps and monitored heavily in Western China, and that's what I fear more than you know Facebook banning me, because you know, Facebook can do what the hell it wants to do, right? Or Twitter not letting you know a anti-abortion movie broadcast on its site. I think that's evil, but I'm not worried about those things because I have faith in people. People will find the information. They now know how to find the information. And the narrative is no longer uh, stuck with these, these people who are holier than now or who are more intelligent than we are. So Sri Lanka did what it did. And many, many countries do this stuff. I mean, Venezuela has done it recently. and. That's what I fear most, not the technology and, the pe- and how people use it, but how that is going to give the state its end to absolutely and positively create the very dystopian technical future, your 1984, your Orwellian future that you fear for these technology companies. That's all I got. This was Thank You for Your Server as part of the Make Liberty Great Again Network. I'm Nick Way. Follow me on Twitter at... Nick Way, N-I-C-K-W-A-Y-E. We're now logging off. Latest.